0: our sermon today, we will be reading um, from the Gospel of Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. I'll give you a minute here and also at home, uh, if you're watching from uh, the stream, to turn there, and then I will read. Verse 15 says, may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather.
1: Good morning. Good to be with you. Today, we are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 24, and it's a passage where Jesus is unpacking what it's like to live in the last days, in between his first and his second comings, in the time period that you and I have lived all of our lives. We left off last week realizing that in this time period, there's going to be a lot of people who will start to follow Christ, but who then get hated, not because they do hateful things or because they're hateful people simply because they identify with christ and jesus promises you can expect that you don't go looking for it you don't provoke it it will just come naturally as you live out your faith and when it does many of those following jesus will abandon the faith many will follow false teachers who distort the faith so that they will no longer experience tension between their faith and the larger society But in that process of choosing a more comfortable life for themselves, of choosing to say yes to their own desires and no to the commands of God, they're going to experience their love growing cold, of being able to care less and less about other people because that inward say yes to me and what I want movement goes from being an action to a habit to a lifestyle. There will be those who start out in the faith and don't endure, but there will also be those who do endure, those whose love for God and for other people also is a practiced lifestyle, who now join Jesus in his mission of proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom to all nations, the news that God has come to rescue his people from judgment. Okay, that was last week. This week, following along that same uh, trail of thought, We're learning that there are obstacles to proclaiming this message there's going to be cataclysmic events in human history that are going to disrupt the lives of god's people there's going to be powerful alternative saviors who have just amazing abilities to deceive nearly everyone jesus tells us about these two obstacles but even more he tells us how to respond to them now i'm going to frame the responses this morning in the negative and then we'll go unpack them so first He tells us, don't be complacent in the face of these events. Second, don't be caught up in material things. And third, don't let yourself be sidetracked. Three things today today, as you face disruption uh, living in this world. Don't be complacent, don't be caught up in material things, and don't be sidetracked. Let's dive in. First, don't be complacent as you see things happening in the larger world that very well could disrupt your life. Now, Jesus is taking a brief aside. He's talking in general so far about the last days. He's taking a brief aside right now to give us a very specific look as to what some of this distress is like. So verses 15 to 21 focus more narrowly on issues involving the temple in the larger area of Judea. He says, verse 15, that there will be an abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place let the reader understand. Now, that phrase, abomination of desolation, it, it actually occurs in Daniel about three times. It's an abomination that causes desolation in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, it's a little vague as to what exactly that means. It's clearly that somebody's going to do something that pollutes, defiles the temple, some kind of gross sacrilege against God. But it's not exactly clear what that abomination is. And I suspect the reason for that ambiguity is because there were a couple of these events. For instance, almost 200 years before Jesus is speaking, back in 168 BC, a Greek king, Antiochus IV, attacked Jerusalem twice, killed thousands of people, enslaved thousands more, and set up a pagan altar in the temple where apparently he sacrificed pigs on that altar. Certainly, counts as one of these abomination of desolation events. But Jesus says there's one coming that's going to be even greater, greater destruction, greater loss of life. And he's telling us here, look for that sign. He's telling his disciples, when you see the abomination set up in the temple, don't act like you didn't know this was coming. Don't let your mouth hang open and stare. Don't be paralyzed wondering what are you supposed to do. Instead, expect these things. And the word to us is expect that events are going to happen to us in our lives, not comfortably a couple thousand miles away. Expect things to happen that will impact you. Don't be unprepared for them. Don't let them sort of roll over top of you. Instead, be ready to act. Now, Jesus gives his disciples some specific steps here. He tells them to flee you need to be a little careful because he's not developing here a general theology of what do you do when your country is overrun by an enemy. He's not talking here about how to deal with war in the abstract, not saying in all times and in all places, this is what a righteous approach to war looks like. Instead, this is a very unique time. In verse 21, he tells us that what Judea is going to experience is something that has not taken place, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. There's something so severe in this destruction that the only appropriate response then is to flee from it. And so you you have the picture in your mind sort of of the complete and total devastation that happened when God rained down his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that event, the only appropriate thing that Lot and his family could do was flee, to get as far away as they possibly could without pausing to grab any of their possessions, not even an extra set of clothes. That's the kind of thing that Jesus has in view here, some overwhelming judgment of God for which the only reasonable response is to flee. Now, before we go too much further, we have to ask the question, why? Why is Jesus telling them to flee? It's an important question. Sounds kind of obvious, but it's an important question because if we don't understand why he tells them to flee, it's going to be really hard for us to see how, how does this apply to our lives? Because Jerusalem was devastated in A.D. 70 when Rome came through and just raised it. There is no more temple. There's no more possible abomination that can be set up in the holy place. No sign that we're about to experience God's overwhelming judgment what do we do with this why is this in the scripture and the key is in answering the question why does jesus tell them to flee the answer is not as obvious as you think it is at first it's not simply so that they can live it's not simply so that they can stay alive you realize living beings already have an instinct to stay alive why would you have to tell people what already comes naturally Run away from danger. I mean, we already know how to do that. Let's make it a little more confusing, though, because back in the winter when we were studying the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, we read that Jesus saying, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And you realize there that Jesus calls us to a self-sacrificial life, one that is now lived in the shadow of our own cross. He tells us that the only way to follow him is to hold our lives loosely, to live daily with the reality that following him very well might lead to our own death. In fact, he just promised a couple verses earlier, Matthew 24, verse 9, that in identifying with him, not only will you be hated by your society, You might even be killed. So you realize here that in in Jesus's uh, priority of values, preserving your life is not the highest one. It wasn't Jesus's highest value for himself. There's something more important to him than his own life. He willingly laid down his life. He went to the cross, even though he could have avoided it. When he was arrested, he told Peter not to fight. Peter had already pulled out his sword. He told peter that he could call on his father in that moment have 12 legions of angels at his disposal and so jesus in that moment did not have to die but he chose to why something else was more important to him than preserving his own life what was more important it was so that he could open the door of the kingdom for you and me to walk through so that we could know god we could be part of his kingdom Jesus died for us, valued us more highly than he valued his own life. And he calls us now to follow him in doing that, to take up our cross for his sake and the gospel's. So then, what is of more value than preserving your life? It's using the life you have for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God, it's living life well which in part means using your life to see this kingdom expand, to see others have the opportunity to be invited into it. It's where we left off last week in verse 14, that those who endure in the faith, they express that endurance in part by wanting others to hear of this great God who rescued them. And they want that, even though that's going to put their lives in jeopardy. There is a higher value in the kingdom of God than simply breathing than simply staying alive. Now, you have to hear me very carefully. Your life is important. Every person's life is. Don't be reckless with your life. Don't be foolish with your life. Don't throw it away. Value your life. But value it like God values it. Realize that there are a lot of ways to throw your life away, one of which is thinking that your life, preserving your life, enjoying your life, is the primary reason why you're here that it's the primary reason why you have a life. And Jesus is helping us understand here, no, that's not the case. If you live that way with yourself as the all-consuming center of your life, you will throw it away. You'll lose your life, Jesus says. You'll have wasted it. That is not why Jesus tells his followers to flee. Rather, he's urging them to escape God's coming judgment, to preserve their lives from within the context of why they live in the first place. It's within the same context that informs God for why he does what he does in the first place. It's verse 22, it's for the sake of the elect. It's for the sake of God bringing into his family all the children that he plans to have live with him for all eternity. We talked about this two weeks ago. We asked, why doesn't God simply put an end to all the suffering, all the misery of this world? Why is he allowing this time of the last days to go on? Why did he not just simply judge evil after Jesus rose from the dead? He allows all of this suffering and upheaval to continue. For what reason? It's so that in holding back his wrath, in being patient, it allows you and me and everybody else who will believe in him to be born, to be born physically and then born again spiritually. It's so that you and I and countless other people can join him for eternity. He does what he does for the sake of the elect. That's the key. That's why Jesus tells the disciples to flee when they see the sign of the abomination in the temple. It's because Jerusalem and Judea are no longer crucial to God's plan. And therefore, the disciples should not try to hang on to them, but be prepared to let them go so that the disciples can what? Can continue their purpose of proclaiming the gospel to all the nations. So if you put all of this together, Jesus calls you to himself and to his mission. That calling now what? Now takes number one spot. It takes priority in your life. And in pursuing him and in pursuing his mission, he calls you to be prepared to die if you have to or to flee if you can. But you don't flee simply out of instinct or to preserve your life as if it were the highest good, your highest reason for being here. You flee because in preserving your life, you can use it better to advance God's purposes on this earth than if you hadn't fled. That's point one. Don't be complacent as you engage the, this world and the dangerous things that you're gonna encounter here. Instead, be ready to respond so that you live a life that counts. Which means, point two, you can't get caught up in material things. That not only do you hold your own life loosely, but you hold the things of this life loosely. That they can't own you, they can't control you, because if they do, you will not be able to respond well in moments of crisis. Verse 17, let everyone, let, let the one who is on the housetop, your houses in those days were flat, they were a place where people would do other kinds of activities, so it's kind of like an extended living space. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus says when you see these, this warning sign, this abomination, you're going to be tempted You're gonna be tempted to pause, tempted as you think about your physical possessions, about the things in your house, about the cloak you left behind as you went out to work that day in the field. And in that moment, you're not thinking, the most important thing that I can do with my life is to love God and his children that he's brought into his family. And so I need to flee to preserve this life and what I can do with it while I still have it. You're not thinking that, instead you're thinking, the most important thing that I have is this physical object, the possession, this cloak, this thing that is so important to me that I've already given my life to earning it and given my life to keeping it. And right now, I need to run and protect it, even if that ends up costing me my life because this thing means that much to me. See, that's what happens when good things, houses, possessions, clothes, become ultimate things things that control you that control your decisions things that you value above seeing god's kingdom advance things that you now value above your own life things that you'd risk your life to preserve things that blind you to thinking correctly see in that moment if your possessions own you you can't stop yourself and you can't think to yourself wait God and his children will last forever. They are eternal. If I give myself to loving them, then I'm using my life in ways that will have eternal outcomes, ways that will last forever. But this thing, this thing that my mind is all wrapped up in right now, it's not eternal. And so sure, I might be able to save it right now, but it's not going to end up lasting. (laughs) And one day I'm going to lose it anyway. Either it's going to get old and wear out or someone's going to take it from me or I'm going to die and I'm going to leave it here. When your possessions control you, you can't think like that. That's why you have to be willing to leave them. When you're thinking clearly, it only makes sense to live your life not caught up in them, not living to serve them, but living instead to serve the Lord and to serve his people. It makes sense... And it's really hard to do. Because the good things of this world, you know this, can have such a hold on us that they keep us from responding well in a crisis. They seem like the most important thing. Let's think again about Sodom and Gomorrah for a moment. It's a story that makes you take the judgment of God seriously. There is really judgment that really is coming. But it also makes you take your own foolishness seriously. God sends messengers to warn Lot, of what he's about to do, to wipe out these cities that completely disgust him. And repeatedly throughout this story, Lot drags his feet. He he really doesn't want to leave. Finally, the two angels that God sends grab his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and they basically drag them out of the city. He was a man who did not live, thinking about how to use his life for the purposes of God. And neither did his wife. She couldn't bear to leave everything behind. And so at one point she turns around apparently in regret sorrow for what she's lost and in that moment god judges her too just like he's judging sodom and gomorrah she loses her life she shares in the destruction of the place that she longed for it's the place where she wanted to be instead of rejoicing that she was standing outside of god's judgment saved from it by him she just couldn't let it go She couldn't let go of her house, her possessions, her clothes, her surrounding community. All of those things were more important to her than the God who saved her, who rescued her. That's what she lived her life for. It's what she longed for. And it's what she died for. Jesus is saying to us, don't die for that stuff. Your life is worth so much more. Live for something real. Give yourself to something eternal, something so glorious and wonderful. Give yourself to seeing the purposes of God advance on this earth so that in times of crisis, you won't have to think about where your loyalty lies. Does it lie with temporal stuff or with eternal? Instead, you'll know where your loyalty lies because you've been making that decision every single day. It's point two, don't be caught up in physical material things. Live your life for things that will last. Make here and now decisions with eternity in mind. Which brings us to point three, don't let false prophets sidetrack you. You notice Jesus keeps talking about false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets? It means you and I need to take that seriously. We need to take seriously that there really will be a lot of people signing up for the job, people saying that in the face of crises, that they know what we should do. There's going to be lots of them, and they're going to be really persuasive, really, really compelling. Not just compelling and tempting for non-Christians, but tempting for Christians. Jesus is talking here to his disciples, working hard to warn us. He unpacks a little bit more of what's going to make these false saviors so enticing. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now, Jesus says there's two temptations here that can suck us in. We need to take these really seriously. Two temptations that will make these people so engaging that they will be able to lead astray the elect if that were possible, if God himself did not work overtime to protect you from being led astray. These guys, these gals, are going to do things that will put us right on the edge of straying away from Jesus and going after them instead. Now, what are the two temptations? They're actually things that people living in the Philadelphia suburbs are really susceptible to. Power and being insiders. These false saviors are going to do things that are going to demonstrate that they have power over the forces of this world, that they have the ability to keep you safe from the mess that the world is in. They have power, and they will come to those who are in the know. They'll meet and gather in special places, out away from all the regular folk, out in the wilderness, in an inner room, hidden away, tucked away, but you, you can have access. You get a special invitation. Look, here he is. That's alluring. (laughs) You can come in contact, be on the inside track of the powerful, of the great, of the mighty. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't go there. Human beings are given to looking for powerful saviors, for ways of dealing with events that are outside of our control. We especially like saviors that have some religious overtone to them. And so we have to be on our guard constantly, or we really could be taken in. Because next to these guys, the real Jesus almost starts to look not not as interesting not as powerful as we would like him to be. Maybe not quite worth living our life for, giving our life for. Sure, he says he can save us, get us in good with God, but when it comes to daily living, maybe we'd be better off looking to someone else, someone who would probably open up better doors for us, someone we could trust more than we trust Jesus. See, that's the temptation to not live day-to-day relying on Jesus and what he has done for us. To not live relying on the gospel for the power to deny ourselves and to deny what we want. To not rely on the gospel for the power to live for his sake and for the sake of others. It's tempting not to connect the gospel with daily life, but to look at what Jesus did as simply concerned you know, with the future. Now with the here and now here's the problem if you only look for the gospel for your future then you will get hooked by something someone in the present who looks strong and able to handle the stress of life <laughs> and that's appealing when we've not been practicing relying on jesus to handle the stress and the stressors of life an alternative is very appealing i was talking to someone a couple years ago married man. His wife used to give him the silent treatment when he upset her. Sometimes she would do this for weeks, occasionally months at a time. And understandably, he would do what? He would do his absolute best not to do anything that would upset her. And so he did what? He tended to sit back in the relationship, not initiate, certainly not challenge her, not suggest that maybe we could possibly think about doing something different in the house, and certainly not. Maybe there are some things in you that we could maybe talk about. He didn't want to do that because he didn't want to take the risk of offending her and then getting frozen out. He's trying to find a way to empower him in a godly kind of way, to help him realize there's another person in your marriage. It's not just him and her but that Jesus is also present, and that this husband could rely on Jesus, could rely on Christ's love, on Christ's power, on his very real presence, to overcome his fear of his wife and how she might respond to him. So I asked him, I said, tell me what the gospel looks like when you're scared of how your wife might respond. What does Jesus dying on the cross unleash for you, unleash in you, so that you can step into this space with confidence not confidence in obtaining some particular outcome but confidence that you have right now what it takes to love your wife well even if she doesn't respond well what does the gospel mean for you in these times and his response has stuck in my head he looked at me said well uh, um let's see um, Jesus died for my sins so that I can be with him in heaven. And then there was this very long pause. He said, Man, this is a whole lot easier when you're talking to an unbeliever. What did he just tell me? He just told me that he does not live with an awareness of what Jesus had done for him, has anything to do right now with how he lives with his wife, with how he lays down his life now for her sake. He doesn't live with a present, active awareness of God's love in his life that is so powerful and so transformative that it empowers him to live well with her, even when she's not at her best. He told me that he does not have an awareness, a present active experience, that after what Jesus did, that the Father only turns to him, never away, not even when his wife turns away and stops talking to him. He told me that he doesn't have an active awareness that God is not angry with him, not now and never will be, for anything that he might have said to his wife that she doesn't like. He has no joy in God's being not angry with him. He's longing instead for his wife not to be angry with him. He's not experiencing how God does not shut him out, does not withhold himself from this man, that God's love is greater than anything he could ever have from any person who's made in the image of God. He's not experiencing how God moves toward him in love to make up the difference when others hurt him. He's not blown away by the reality, not experiencing that he cannot be loved any more by God right now than he already is. And that because he has that love right now, he loses nothing by trying to love his wife, even if she rejects him. What's he missing? He's missing the ties and the connections between the work of Christ and the small, minute details of his life. And so while he does love God, he really does, God is largely absent from his world. And instead, he lives knowing that Jesus did something in the past that secures something for him in the future, but that something has little to do with the here and now, and so he has no real power or even interest in sacrificing his desires for what his wife needs. He would rather choose his own comfort, not love her, by giving up his life for her. Live that way. Have that small view of God and his gospel. Have that small experience, and you'll be a sitting duck for someone who comes along and says to you, I have the secret for how to live life well, and I can share it with you. Follow me in this. Trust me rather than trusting Christ, and I'll share that with you. Jesus warns you that these false saviors and false prophets are going to come along, that they are going to be someone who poses as him or who offers to take his place. Do not believe it. He says, verse 27 For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Don't believe someone else's claim to be the Savior. No matter what kind of power they demonstrate or what kind of inside track they offer, kind of special knowledge they have to give you, trust instead that when Jesus, the real Jesus, comes back to deal with the pain and suffering of the last days, he's going to do so in a way that is obvious and visible so that no one will be able to miss him then. And his people have to live in such a way that we don't miss him now. How do you do that? How do you learn to rely on him to live out daily life? How do you get so tied into him that the false saviors are clearly false so that they have no appeal to you? So that Christ's call to live your life for his sake and the gospel doesn't simply make sense. It moves something inside of you. Is there anything you can do except wait around for Jesus to come back? Clearly, the answer is yes first part of that answer is learn to see him now. He is just as obviously present now as he will be one day. In fact, you really can't escape him. (laughs) He's all around you. You live in his world. You breathe his air. You eat his food. He is as obvious as lightning against a dark sky if you learn to see things the way they really are. And if you do, then you're going to see that he is so much bigger and so much better that you won't be taken in by a cheap substitute this is how you fight that first temptation when a false christ shows you how powerful they are how do you not get taken in by an imposter practice seeing how jesus is connected to everything in, that you come in contact with if you do that you'll realize he has more power than anyone else will ever be able to demonstrate will give you an illustration it's very easy in this world to see a great work of art and to be impressed with what? With it. It's how we're taught to engage the things in our world. And so we, we see the artwork, and we see its beauty, its strength, the story it tells, how it moves us. And in that moment, it's very easy to narrow your focus and concentrate solely on the art, and to think little of what? Of the artist, But if we shift from what was made to who made it, we start to see someone who's even more amazing than the thing that they made. Someone who's more beautiful than the artwork. Someone whose mind could envision the beauty that you see in front of you. Look past the piece to the person who made it and you discover they are more beautiful than what they created. But don't stop there, because that person did not give themselves their own mind. It took someone even more beautiful to conceive of the beauty of the artist's mind, the the mind that allowed them to conceive of the beauty that they then created. It took someone who could not only envision their mind, but who then gifted that mind to them. In other words, don't let yourself live like an atheist. Don't settle for seeing beautiful artwork as if it created itself. Don't see the artist as if the artist is responsible for creating themselves. Do the work of seeing the God behind the art who makes the art possible. The God, then, who has to be even more beautiful. Or don't be content merely to think that the piece of art is powerful without thinking of the power of someone's hands to do the work they did in bringing that power to the art or their inner strength that kept them at it until it was finished focus beyond the piece to see that the artist is stronger has to be stronger than what they created and then realize there's someone outside that who's even stronger still has to be stronger than anything they've created realize it took someone even more powerful to create a strong person who can put power into the object that they made. Or notice that the story the art tells is only as compelling as it is because the artist inside feels something that is that much more compelling. That the art is only moving because the artist was even more moved. And then let your mind again Realize that God is even more compelling, more moving to be around. More so than the most passionate artist who makes compelling art. And then let yourself, now that you've got a sense of the size of this God, let yourself realize what he's offering you. The chance to be with him. To live with him. If you don't see his greatness, it's hard to want to take up your cross for his sake. It, It kind of almost feels like you're doing him a favor you know, helping out a friend. But when you see him, you realize, no, the favor goes the other way. The favor that I could not buy with my whole life. And he doesn't make me feel beholden, doesn't make me feel belittled, doesn't make me feel like I owe him. Instead, I'm blown away. He literally could have anyone he wanted, and he chose me don't wait until jesus appears in such a way that everyone has to see him learn to see him now work at tying what you see in this world back to him (laughs) don't just live in a world in a world full of houses and possessions and clothes expand your world look at the ones who build houses create possessions make clothes recognize they are greater than anything they produce and then realize the one who makes them is that much greater still. Do that, and you'll start to see how much bigger he is than you've ever been able to imagine. Practice. Get used to seeing him bigger, above, beyond everything that you encounter on this earth, and it will inoculate you against the power that any so-called savior would offer. But then go the next step realize that this incredibly powerful person also takes you inside into his confidence that he shares secrets with you things about himself and this world that you could never know in any other way this is how you fight the second temptation being on the inside track with a mover and a shaker it's that strange comment at the end of verse 15 let the reader understand think reader reader of what reader of matthew's book that doesn't make any sense matthew isn't writing anything here that's really confusing why would he pause and tell us think about this a little bit more you realize no jesus here is saying let the reader of daniel understand jesus expects that his people do what we we read scripture that it's what we do because we know god is talking to us that he's taking us into his confidence into an inner room with a him telling us things that we need to know for life telling us so much that he leaves out nothing that we need to know in order to understand and live life well nothing that someone else needs to come along later and fill in for us that he tells us what is both both necessary and sufficient to navigate all of life including times when a spouse gives you the silent treatment. Things so that we know how to lay our, down our life our life for the, his sake in that moment. Ignore the scripture. Don't read it. Tell yourself, I've already done that a couple times. Ignore the scripture and you will be enamored of having the inside track with someone else. And you'll be led around by them. Value what God has to say, and you'll discover how much smarter, how much wiser he is than anyone who would try to take his place. Do that, and you won't want anyone to take his place. The more you see God's greatness and the more you listen to him, the more you'll see how much better he is, how much more he has to offer. And the more you see that, the more you're going to want him, the more you'll want the real thing, not one of these Christ pretenders. Colleen McCullough wrote a series of books a number of years ago on ancient Rome. And in one of them, she sketches the budding romance between Julius Caesar's daughter, Julia, and a man named Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus. Magnus was the idol of his day. (laughs) He was so renowned that many young women would buy a small plaster bust of him so that they could look at him and, and dream about him. Caesar wanted to form an alliance with Magnus And to do so, he was planning to offer his daughter, Julia, to him in marriage. So he invited Magnus over for dinner. Julia appeared taken with Magnus. But afterward, she went to her room and threw her bust of Magnus into the trash, as if she wanted nothing more to do with him. Caesar was crestfallen over this unexpected development, so he sought out his mother's counsel. She rescued his hopes by explaining that far from wanting nothing to do with Magnus, Julia was no longer content to settle for a small figurine. She wanted the real thing. Once you have the real thing, you lose your taste for anything else. And when the substitutes come along, they're both at once more, obviously just cheap knockoffs and completely unsatisfying, and you get rid of them because you want the real thing. And this amazing, powerful God who dares to take you into his confidence makes it possible for you to have the real thing, for you to have him, even though he had to pay a huge price to do so. See, he had to find a way to get rid of his judgment against you, against his judgment against your sin, judgment against all the times when you had your priorities in the wrong place, when you look to something other than him as to how to live well. That judgment, the wrath of God, stands between every single person and the God who made them. And it stands there until it's fully paid. It's what Jesus did on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. It was to deal with the infinite wrath of an infinitely holy, infinitely offended God that no finite person could ever absorb. Infinite judgment that Jesus could. Which doesn't mean it was easy. We tend to trivialize this. We tell ourselves that what we've done isn't so bad, it's not really that big a deal. And so we don't really understand things like holy. We don't understand things like the wrath of God. We think, okay, that doesn't sound good, but how bad can that be? Jesus knew better. He saw the judgment of God looming on the horizon, coming toward him the night that he was betrayed. And it was so frightening that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He saw it coming and wanted nothing to do with it. The Son of God, God himself, did not want to face the holy wrath of a deeply offended God. He asked, let it pass from him if possible. But then what did he do? He stayed. He did not flee the city in the face of God's coming judgment. He could have, but he stayed. Not to save any physical thing, any house or possession, set of clothes. He stayed and faced the judgment of God to save you. He stayed because if he fled to save himself, God's judgment would still come and then fall on you. And there would have been no way for you to run fast enough or far enough to escape it. And so he stayed, absorbed all that wrath and judgment, his own wrath and judgment, so that you would never have to so that you could be with him, this powerful God who is above and beyond everything there's ever been, who takes you into his confidence, shares his soul with you. This one died for you before ever saying to you, you need to be willing to do the same. He died for you. He went all in for you. And he only wants a relationship with people who also go all in. See more of him. See, his love for you, you'll never be taken in by anyone else, and you yourself will want to go all in to live for his sake, to live for the sake of his gospel, because no one is ever going to compare with him. See him, and you will only want the real thing. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Let us see the real you. You came veiled in flesh, cloaked. Lord, you look like us. You became one of us. Lord, help us to see beyond just a physical, external appearance. Let us see your heart, and let us see your passion for your people. Lord, realign us. We get so blinded and clouded in the suburbs. We get filled up with things. We get filled up with thinking that our life is the most important thing that we have. Lord, you gave up your life for us. You've called us to give up our lives for the sake of something better. Lord, please touch us deep inside so that we have that longing and desire to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name.